Well, I'm happy because I'm at a point in my life where I've learned to love myself. I've learned to honor who I am as a man. I've learned to, you know, have forgiveness to forgive myself, to move forward that allow me to forgive others. And th those are things I think that kind of led me on that spiritual path of healing in the process that I went through. You know, it, it's not easy. There were days I wanted to quit. There were days I cried. <laughs> there were days I was just like, you know, I'd be mad at God, I'd be like, for real? real God. <laughs> but at the same time, I knew that I was on a different path than I ever been before. And I would say coming out of that had led me to even bigger and better things that I would never have imagined. Welcome back to Chat with Leaders, where we amplify the voices of leaders who use business and influence as a force for good. We believe that it's their example that will have a tremendous impact on our next generation of servant leaders who will carry us forward into our bright, sustainable future. In this episode, I chat with the inspiring Luis Enrique Negron about his story of self-discovery, spiritual healing, service to the community, and development as an executive business leader. As executive director and chief operating officer of the 100 Black Men of Atlanta, Luis Negron is committed to supporting the young scholars who will become the leaders of tomorrow. Negron was named one of Georgia's 50 most influential Latinos by the Georgia Hispanic Chamber of Commerce in 2021 and featured in Atlanta Magazine's 2020 list of the 500 most influential leaders. We're extremely excited to unpack his wisdom and story alongside you all today. Enjoy. Where did you grow up and how did your childhood experiences inform your worldviews and aspirations to become a business leader? That's a great question. Um, I was born and raised in Oakland, California. My parents migrated in the 1950s from Puerto Rico to Oakland. Um, my dad was a Teamster guy, so he ended up with the Teamster Union and became a sanitation worker for the city of Oakland for over 38 years. So with that, they sent for all of the family and the additional friends of family to come on over. So I grew up in North Oakland, which is a 46 and Shattuck and where Telegraph and Shattuck meet. So if you're familiar with that area, I grew up probably about five miles from the University of California at Berkeley, which is right there in North Oakland. And then probably another six miles where the Bay Bridge is located going over to San Francisco. So that was a very beautiful area I grew up in. But um, at the time in which I was growing up, Oakland was going through a, a transformation. Um, you could just say that it was a, basically, I was born in 1972. So it was you know at the height of, in the ending of basically of civil unrest and civil rights and then the Vietnam War, especially there during those years in, in the Bay, you know, Oakland and San Francisco, the flower people and everything, hippies and stuff. But to have to say the Black Panther Party was started in my neighborhood. Actually, Huey P. Newton uh, was a graduate of Oakland Tech, which is the high school I went to. Um, I was seeing him in the Panthers around many times. I attended early on in, in when I was a little boy, the Black Panther schools. So, you know, for me, I didn't see them as this mysterious or bad criminalized type organization that sometimes they are portrayed, but more or less the organization that came into the neighborhood to give information to those of us who really needed the education and the work to be done. So for me, you know, that was kind of like the socialization that I had and really informed the experience in which I needed with the Black Panther Party. With that, I was able to just really come on the cusp. So Oakland was always on the forefront of social innovation is the best way to say it, between Berkeley and Oakland. So my childhood experiences were really, I didn't learn English till I was the age of six. So I spoke Spanish through that whole time because, you know, I have a Spanish-speaking family. Uh, <laughs> so my dad, he looks like a Black man. So my dad's a Black Puerto Rican. My mom's a white Puerto Rican. So outside walking around, most people, you know, they're like, oh, he's just a mixed kid till they heard me speak or heard my parents speak. But I would say the, the experiences that I had was I saw my neighborhood change. It went from middle class 
to, you know, really into the lower class because of what, because of drugs. So heroin came in, then crack cocaine came in heavily during the eighties. And I saw devastation. You know, unfortunately I saw family and friends succumb to that. At that time, the AIDS epidemic was really big, especially in San Francisco. So I got, you know, I experienced a lot of that early on through, I would say my early childhood and into me becoming a young adult and seeing that happen. So for me, what really helped me was that I had great mentors. I had great resources in the community, the Boys and Girls Club. I was a member of that. I was also, um, you know, I received a lot of mentoring. At the same time, while that was happening around me, I was insulated by great people who poured into me from education and sports and kept me away from the streets. So for me, I mean, you know, that really got my worldview. We were exposed to leaders like um, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King or Cesar Chavez, you know, so for us, you know, those are things that we saw and we studied, especially in Oakland. So I, I think my first foray into wanting to be into the nonprofit work was when I worked with a program called the Omega Boys Club, which was started in 1987 in San Francisco. Um, I was one of the first students there um, because they were in Oakland also and worked with them. And then I became like a peer educator. And then I got to work with the YWCA as an AIDS, uh, AIDS educator for, for young people. And when I became 18 years old, I had a great chance to work with Mary Wright Edelman of the Children's Defense Fund. She was the founder of there. And I got to see the inner workings of how taking a, a, an idea to say, okay, we're gonna go and do free summer schools for kids and this is gonna be based on college students. And I was part of that work. And then I was like, you know what? This is something I think I could do. <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> I could write a grant. <laughs> I could, you know, I could convince somebody to give money. It, it just was a motivation. So for the next two years, I really focused on working in, in throughout Oakland. I worked with the um, Oakland Public School System, different nonprofits. Was at Laney College. I stayed home for two years, and then um, Marion was like, "You should consider going to Morehouse College." So that's how I got to the house. I ended up transferring to uh, and moving to Georgia to go to Morehouse College. And while here, I really was um, I only went to school on Tuesdays and Thursdays because of the rest of the days I traveled. Or her from D.C. to Mississippi to wherever she needed me. And I didn't think about it, you know, at that time that it was really work. You know, I was more like an intern and working and learning, but I was exposed to so much at such a young age that it was really like an apprenticeship. And a lot of people ask me, they're like, well, how did you learn so much and get to where you at as a leader today? And I said, well, I was blessed to have someone that believed in me at a young age and who really believed in my journey and poured into me. And that was the apprenticeship that I had. I said, back then, I didn't look at it like that. I was just like, oh, I'm just interning and working for the Children's Defense Fund. But looking at it today, it was a form, not only me, but there were other students who also did the same work with her. But I know for me, I took it more or less that this could become a career for me. And eight years later, I would say that I ended up getting burnt out. Um, you know, after I graduated from Morehouse, went on to grad school, got married. I was like, you know, I'm tired of nonprofit work. <laughs> I need something different. And I went to higher education at that time. So you mentioned a couple of great things there. I love the Boys and Girls Club. First of all, the mentorship and the pouring into our youth, particularly those that have aspirations to stay out of trouble and, and, and really get out uh, of these difficult uh, communities. But that is a devastating time that you mentioned uh, that really changed the makeup of Oakland and its surrounding areas. And, and I'm just so glad that you had people that poured into you. So I know you started your career and 
you had alluded to some challenges that you faced uh, over the course of your career. Although you've had a lot of success at face value and you've done such wonderful, impactful work. Is there anything that you wish that the young man that you were at 18 kind of entering into your career maybe knew about those challenges that maybe he would have appreciated a heads up about? You know, everyone asks me that all the time, but I'm like, I, I wouldn't change nothing because I wouldn't be the man I am today. If I was to have any heads up or any clue back then, you know, I probably would have made a couple of dis different decisions, but I think everything that I've experienced thus far to get to where I'm at, I wouldn't change nothing in the world. I would just tell that young man, um, you know, just continue to believe in yourself, continue to trust your gut, continue to have your faith, um, and, and, and be steadfast in those three things. Well, I know that faith has been such an important part of uh, healing from some certain challenges in your life, and it's been critical to your, your leadership and who you are today. So what was the tipping point that ultimately led you to seek more of a spiritual path to healing in your leadership? And how would you describe the process that you went through? You know, it actually started in my first marriage, and this is nothing against other religions, but, you know, we were Catholic. I grew up Catholic, and I just felt when I was going to the church, I just didn't feel like I was being fed, and that was just me personally. I can't speak to anyone else, but that, you know, I, I you know, I knew the priest. I, you know, I was a member of the Knights of Columbus. I was very active, but I, I just didn't feel fulfilled, and I remember telling my ex-wife, you know, it just doesn't doesn't feel right to me. I, I like to go seek some other churches. And she was steadfast, like, oh, no, 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 this is where we're going to be. And as that went on, especially when we got to 2016, in 20, April of 2016, I suffered a stroke where I was paralyzed on my full left side. You know, as I was paralyzed, praying and asking God, I'm like, you know, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> Am I going to be able to walk again? Am I going to, you know, move my fingers or even play with my kids or hold them again? You know, my life is going to be totally different. I'll never forget three in the morning on that third night in Gwinnett County um, a Medical Hospital at then Lawrenceville, I, I heard a voice sound just like mine. And it was subtle. It said submit. And I thought I was hearing things. You know, I was on meds, of course. And, but I heard it strong again. It said submit. And I start crying like a baby. The ugly cry. But unfortunately, <laughs> this side of my face couldn't move. So you can just imagine what that might look like. <laughs> and I just said, God, I submit. I release everything. I just submit. And, and three things came clear, get a divorce, lose my weight and become ordained. And that next morning when I saw my ex-wife and you know some friends that came to visit me, I let them know. They were like, oh, you're crazy. The stroke made you crazy. Uh, <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. And I could say that was the first time in my life that I was clear. The first time in my life that I felt free to really make a choice. And, and, and I felt empowered by God to be able to move forward with my life. And that was my, my, my tipping point. A day later, I could wiggle my fingers. I could wiggle my toes because I promised God, I said, I, I would do things differently. And, and really, that was the tipping point where, where everyone saw my journey. They were like, oh, my God, he's, he's homeless now. Oh, my God, he's not working. They didn't understand the internal journey that I had to do. I, you know, we know, we know Jesus did his, his 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. I guess mine took a little longer than that. <laughs> but for me, it was really shredding the emotional and spiritual weight that I've had all those years. It was learning to go to do healing in a different, different manifestations that I hadn't done before. I had to go to therapy. I got a therapist. I had to deal with my mommy issues. I had to deal with my daddy issues. I had to deal with being abused and abandoned as a young man. Uh, you know, making, this, making decisions that were not healthy for me. 
people say, how did I get to 425 pounds? It was because I didn't love myself. I used to just eat, 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 because I was an emotional eater. When I didn't feel right, food was my comfort. You know, for other people, it could be another addiction, but for me, it was food. And that, that led me down that path to be unhealthy and get that, and that stroke that happened. And I tell people, I'm not mad that the stroke happened. I think it was God's way to just sit me down <laughs> to be still. <laughs> and it was like, Luis, you're going to listen to me one way or the other. Even if I have to immobilize you, you're going to listen. And it made me have an introspective look of really what, how did I want to live the rest of my life? Even you know at that time, because I, my arms and legs still needed, I couldn't move them as much. So I, you know, I had to come to the point where I was like, if this is going to be my life, I'm going to live it to the fullest with what I have and the capacities I have. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be impeccable. I'm going to be obedient. And I think for me, that was really a starting point. I was blessed six months later to um, a, a friend of mine who finished his doctorate degree in ministry from Mercer School of Theology, McAfee there, was like, Luis, come, come look at this school. I think, I think this will fit you. And because I was looking for divinity schools and everywhere I went, it just didn't fit right. Love Emory. <laughs> I think Emory Candler School is great. It just wasn't a good fit for me. ITC, which is located in the Atlanta University Center near Morehouse, just wasn't a fit for me. But when I went to Mercer, I can say I found my tribe. <laughs> Very mixed staff, maybe mixed students. Um, I went and applied. I actually got in. They gave me a call because at first, they were like, well, you've been accepted, but you have to interview with the dean. So I went and interviewed with the dean and, and she was tough. She was like, well, why, why you feel you deserve a scholarship? You know, there's other people that are more deserving than you and probably done. And I thought, you know, that's true. I, I may not be the student that deserves a full scholarship, but I said, I know what I've been through in my life. I know that I have, I transformed. I've always been a man of faith. I've always done what's in the best interest of the community. But I said, but you know, if there's another uh, deserving soul who needs it, let them have it. And that's what I told him. Then I'll figure out a way. And then when I left, um, a week later, I got a call. I'm driving. Um, and, and Nikki Hardiman, she's now um, the director of alumni affairs. She was over the admissions at that time. But she said, I got two things to tell you. And I said, OK. So she said, well, number one, you know, you've been fully admitted. I said, well, thank you. That's good. And then she said, well, there's another thing I have to tell you. And I said, OK, what's that one? And she was like, um, well, you received the presidential scholarship. And I tell you, I've learned to cry like a baby. So I cried that ugly cry like a baby again. And and I had to pull over uh, because I wouldn't have not expected that to have happened to me. You know, at this point in my life, I'm in my 40s, you know, <laughs> recovering from the stroke, you know, I'm homeless, I'm kind of struggling to get my life together. But this is something that happens that's, that's really on the positive side. And from that day forward, I knew and I, and I prayed and I told God, you know what, God? You, you made this happen. And for me, I'm going to become ordained. I became ordained a month later as a non-denominational pastor, started my classwork. A year later, traveled to India to really work in India as a mission trip and uh, became certified in inter interfaith studies. I studied Islam, Christianity, Hinduism, Jainism. So I was there, got to be amongst a variety of people that lived in the community. So I think for me, seeing and experiencing those things, I was able to bring all that back here with me to continue my healing journey. And as I was healing, I then became a certified wellness and life coach because I had lost over 170 pounds. I really took care of myself, um, you know, started consulting work, really started on a good path. And from that, I could say that a lot of people started to reach out to me on social media because I would, I would post my workouts. You know, people would see that like, oh my God, you, you look great, you lost weight. And then they were like, we see a glow on you. 
you're happy. And I tell them, I say, well, I'm happy because I'm at a point in my life where I've learned to love myself. I've learned to honor who I am as a man. I've learned to, you know, have forgiveness to forgive myself, to move forward that allow me to forgive others. And th those are things I think that kind of led me on that spiritual path of healing in the process that I went through. You know, it, it's not easy. There were days I wanted to quit. There were days I cry. <laughs> there were days I was just like, you know, I'd be mad at God, I'd be like, for real? real God. <laughs> but at the same time, I knew that I was on a different path than I ever been before. And I would say coming out of that had led me to even bigger and better things that I would never have imagined. I think most people would assume based on your story that you had mentors that stepped into your life, you were raised in a church, you had every opportunity to be spiritually nurtured and focus, but yet it's so easy for leaders, people in life in general to get away from the self-care and they struggle with that sense of spiritual healing. So why do you think that spiritual healing and self-care are things around which many senior business leaders just tend to struggle? I think because sometimes they think it's not related. <laughs> I also think that sometimes they think, well, I see myself as a business person, and that's the identity in which they want to identify with. I did. That was my, my thing. But when, once I really started to accept that the work that I do is a spiritual journey, it's a mission, it's something that is, you know, my divinity way of, of giving back, it's my true gift and talent. I then understood the alignment that the mission work that I do as a career aligns with my faith work and my spiritual work in alignment of the healing work that I do for communities. And I think for me, once I figured that out, things got easy for me, you know, and, and, and I have no problem with letting people know, you know, I, I, I'm open about my faith. I, I do have members of my staff that, you know, they, they, they want to pray. Okay, we'll pray. I have other members that may have a different type of, of, of prayer or one of my employees is a Buddhist. I respect that. So, you know, there, there's different ways to allow that in the work setting. And I think, you know, when you have separation of state and religion, that is part of the part of the, the, how can I say, the fabric of our country, I think that's where, you know, you, you get a chism of it. And for me, I allow it. Um, if, you know, if you need quiet time, if, you, you know, I have, I have a, um, one of my employees, she's Muslim. And so, you know, she, she goes to prayer. And we have a space that is created for her to go when she goes and does her prayer. And everyone honors that. And I think that if people feel that they can have a safe space to honor their deity, their God, or their religion, they work better, they do better, they produce better because they, internally they're happy and they're connected and they know that, they, that you know, they don't have to hide that anymore. I appreciate your vulnerability and just you being able to share your story. I think that's a good word for a lot of leaders today and a lot of people who do separate that in their lives and maybe don't feel like they have a safe environment in which they can practice their faith or express themselves in that way or seek healing mentally or physically. We're in this era where everyone is talking about the importance of mental health. We have depression and suicide and just all these things are on the rise. And so there needs to be a sense of reconciliation of how do we love other people more in our workplace, regardless of their faith, ethnic background, their beliefs, any of that. We need to be more inclusive in our thinking and that that really uh, transcends into all different areas of our life. And, and it's up to executive leaders of organizations where we spend 
a lot of time with those people to model that behavior. So it, it, I just, I didn't want this time to go by without affirming you in the sense of, of what you're doing and how you're modeling that to your, your team and to your community by being authentic. So I, I really do appreciate that about you. And so I did want to ask uh, with a hundred black men of Atlanta, what part of your work today is most exciting to you? And what are some of the initiatives that are just getting you jumping out of bed every morning? <laughs> well, I think for me, um, just being able to see how we could transform a community. So we have several things. So we have Project Success. So Project Success is our Saturday school and Friday pods. That's where we do uh, points of service, where we do a lot of exposing to like STEM projects and financial literacy and those children there are signed up to receive our scholarship. So it's a promise that if they're part of that, we, we get, they get an educational scholarship to go to four years state college or university. And we commit to that. Last year, we spent over $250,000 in scholarship money to over almost 100 young people from, you know, from across. The, they're from California to Georgia because whatever school they go to, we, we help pay their tuition. And I think that a lot of our students are first generation. So that is not only an uplift to get them in college, but also an uplift to support them through their collegiate experience and into their professionals. So that's one part of it. The other part is the mentoring. We do uh, mentoring from sixth grade all the way up to, I would say, young professionals and even us as men. And really seeing that continuum of a pipeline of men of color who have been committed, no matter how successful they are in their career, that they, they will still come and take time to give to share their wisdom, their experience. And it's those connection points that really get me excited where you see that, you know, where else can I see an executive from Coca-Cola coming, you know, on a Saturday and just, you know, being some jeans in a shirt and just hanging with somebody, just talking, just connecting. And that, those are things that I think really are beneficial where you see those connection points. And, and I say even spiritual in a way where you see those spiritual connections of that wisdom coming to fruition there. And that leads me to be happy. We, um, we have a robotics program. We, we're big on STEM and robotics and coding. Um, we did an interview, I did an interview two weeks ago with Telemundo. And the fact that I was able to use my bilingual skills, uh, we highlighted a young lady um, who is at Coretta Scott King. Karen Gomez is her name. This, this young woman is a junior, but she is a dual enrollment. So she's enrolled at Georgia Tech. <laughs> so she's ahead of the game. <laughs> So when she graduates, she's going to go in as a, a second semester sophomore. Um, she wants to be a computer science major. She loves STEM and science. And, and when I hear her talking that it was our program that helped expose her to that. She's first generation in America. Her um, mother and father, you know, the, the type of work that they do, you know, when, when she becomes an engineer or whatever she wants to do, the amount of money that she'll make is going to change the trajectory of that family. So just, just making those type of connections is really big for me. Um, I mean, we, we do great work here. Um, the biggest thing that we're just doing now is a campaign on anti-violence, um, where we're really focusing on gun control and things of that nature. And that's new for us, but we're taking a stance with it because unfortunately, as we've seen in the news over the last few years, a lot of men of color and a lot of people have di are dying due to gun violence. And a lot of our students in the community actually spoke up and were like, well, we need a safe place to speak and talk about this. So... We've been able to do a social justice initiative with Georgia Power and a couple of the funders to really go into and do this work. You know, we had a poetry and art contest two weeks ago at Best Academy where students, I mean, they wrote amazing poetry. And then also we had counselors there to help them talk about that space for them. So, I mean, those are, those are some things there that we do. And then uh, they're my members. I have 193 members of the who's who of Atlanta. I mean, I have the honorable 
um, Andrew Young, who, you know, former mayor of Atlanta is one of our members, and, you know, Hank Aaron is one of our members. And, and I mean, just behind the scenes, seeing these guys and just getting to know who they are and, and just having fun with them. I mean, that to me is, it keeps me going. It keeps me energized. There's a lot of humanity in that. And at the end of the day, we're all here for the greater good. And I think for leaders like you or those who believe in using influence and business as a force for good in the world, it is such an encouragement to our listeners. It's such an encouragement to me, Luis. So thank you for spending this time with me today. If people wanted to follow your leadership or learn more about 100 Black Men of Atlanta, where would you guide them online? Oh, they can definitely go to our Instagram accounts on the 100 Black Men ATL. We're on Facebook, LinkedIn, um, Instagram. We're at the um, 100 Black Men um, ATL. That's our website. Or they can just give a call. <laughs> call the office. Um, we're, we will answer the phones. If people want to come and volunteer with us, they can come and volunteer. Um, we are actually having coffee talks um, every third Saturday of the month, which is advertised on our social media. This past week, we had about 35 people show up for a coffee talk at 830 in the morning. It was a mixture of community people as well as our members. Uh, we go do third Thursdays where we are connecting with people and I also have fireside chats that I do around the community. So Call it like my listening tour campaign. So um, we're doing Metro Atlanta. We'll be going to Gwinnett and Cobb and other places just to you know get out and just touch the people so we can just hear the needs that they have. It's been such a gift to me and, and such a gift to hear your story and your wisdom and your inspiration, Luis. Thank you again for spending this time with us. Thank you, brother. Peace and blessings to all. Well, that wraps up another edition of Chat with Leaders. Thank you for investing your time with us today. If you haven't already, we would be grateful if you shared this episode with a friend and rated it on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts so we can pass down the wisdom from our guests to more aspiring leaders. If you're interested in launching a professional podcast to grow your business, we would love to help. Check out chatwithleaders.com for more information and feel free to reach out by emailing team at chatwithleaders.com. Thanks again and go be a leader worth following.